Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Trust in the Lord, commit thy way unto him, and he shall bring it to pass. Trust in the Lord forever, and in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting peace. Thou wilt keep everlasting strength. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, use 1 John 1, 9, which means to simply, in the privacy of your priesthood, in silent prayer, uh, admit, acknowledge, or identify your sins to God the Father, and he will instantly forgive you. You are restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, ready to resume your spiritual advance. And then after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together as a body of believers to study your word. We thank you for this nation, for the freedom we have to still study your word without government interference. We thank you that we have the freedom to proclaim the truth of your word. We thank you for all that you have provided for us in the revelation of your word that teaches us about yourself, teaches us about our fallen condition, our need for salvation teaches us about our wonderful Savior and our so great salvation that we might learn how to have a relationship with you and that having been saved by faith alone and Christ alone, we might pursue our spiritual growth on the basis of the study of your word. Father, we pray now that as we continue our study this morning that we would be challenged by the things that we study, come to a greater understanding and appreciation of the importance of your word in our life that we may continue to advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, and we are in the midst of the 14th chapter, which is dealing with regulations in worship concerning the use of specifically two spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues. This is the third chapter of three, dealing with spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 is the introduction that outlined the purpose of the spiritual gifts and listed a number of them. Chapter 13, in the minds of many, is a parenthesis. Although it is not, it is to emphasize that the real issue is spiritual growth and advance, which is uh, evidenced through uh, love, the kind of love that is produced in the believer's life through God the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, it is virtue love and is a love that is first of all directed to God the Father, which becomes the motivation for our love, our impersonal love toward all mankind. In the midst of that uh, chapter, Paul talks about the permanency of love, that is spiritual growth as exhibited by faith, hope, and love, emphasized in the last verse, in contrast to the temporary nature of some of the spiritual gifts, uh, specifically the revelatory and sign gifts indicated by 
tongues, knowledge, and prophecy. Knowledge and prophecy being revelatory gifts, tongues being a sign gift. Last time I started to develop a chart showing that the, the spiritual gifts can be classified into two categories. On the one hand, you have temporary gifts. On the other, permanent gifts. In each category, there are two subcategories. One has to do with communication gifts, and the second category has to do with uh, service uh, gifts, or in the case of temporary gifts, sign gifts. We could also call the communication gifts revelatory gifts. Now, as far as temporary revelatory communication gifts go, we had the gift of apostle, the gift of prophet, and then we had the gift of the word of knowledge and the word or message of wisdom. Those are the four uh, communication revelatory gifts. In terms of service gifts, there were no temporary service gifts, but there is a, they were signed gifts, and there you have uh, gifts such as miracles, healing. This was generally classified as, as a sign to all. It was a sign that the one who performed the, the gift uh, was usually an apostle or associated with an apostolic ministry. Uh, there were a few exceptions, but generally these were conducted through the apostles, and then uh, the gift of languages, usually referred to as tongues. Then you have the permanent gifts, and in terms of communication gifts, you have the gift of evangelist and the gift of pastor-teacher. And then in terms of service gifts, you have the other gifts such as uh, helps, service, mercy, administration, leadership, and exhortation. I might have left one or two out, but those are basically your service gifts. Now, in chapter 14, what we're dealing with here is a problem that was almost unique, well, it was unique in the New Testament time to the Corinthian issue, and that is their problem with tongues. They had elevated this speaking in tongues to the highest form of of spiritual gift, and that being able to do that somehow signified one's uh, super spirituality, that you had a closer relationship to God, that you knew, knew more, uh, uh, you were more spiritual than anybody else, and they may have even gone so far as to say that was indicative of salvation. Now, that error has repeated itself in modern times in the guise of the modern Pentecostal movement. But there are, there are various, uh, uh, shall we say, shades, even among those who believe these sign gifts continue. There are the more extreme Pentecostal charismatics who believe that uh, speaking in tongues is indeed a sign of super-spirituality and is indeed a sign of even salvation. Uh, on the other hand, you have those who are classic Pentecostals who do believe that speaking in tongues is a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is... Uh, but they play it down and they put a greater emphasis on biblical study and edification and less of an emphasis on the outward demonstration of those those gifts. Uh, 
personally, the use of those gifts, the emphasis on the signed gifts in any way, is a distraction to the spiritual life, but some I have met limit it so much that it does not become that much of a distraction or hindrance in their particular spiritual growth. In chapter 14, Paul addresses the problem because what's actually happening What is actually happening in the church at Corinth is that there is a uh, pseudo or false use of tongues. And this we have demonstrated through our study the last several weeks. And that is that in Corinth there was particularly a problem with the mystery religions of the Greek culture, the uh, Eleutherian mysteries, the mystery religion of of, uh, Bacchus worship, Dionysius worship, the mystery religion of the Sibylle Attis cult. All of these emphasize some level of ecstatic utterance where you would have uh, practitioners who would go up into the various groves and and uh, worship centers around the city, and there they would get involved in, in emotional exuberance, in some cases drunkenness, and it was a sign of having had contact with the God that you would speak in this kind of, of ecstatic utterance. Now, it is important to note that the term tongues or glossa, as it is used in the New Testament, is never used to refer to ecstatic utterance per se. They used other terminology to do this. However, what happened in the unique situation of Corinth is that coming out of that background and carrying that pagan baggage with them, when they heard of the spiritual gift of speaking in languages, what they did was they interpreted that in terms of their prior frame of reference. And that is typical of Every single one of us. We come out of a pagan background. We're taught all kinds of concepts within the categories of human viewpoint and especially categories of religion. And when we start getting exposed to biblical truth, there is often the tendency to interpret what the Bible says in light of our frame of reference and in light of our past. And what we have to do is develop objectivity which comes from the Word of God, so that we can begin to evaluate what in our thinking is really a holdover from the cosmic system, what is really a holdover from human viewpoint and religion, and begin to think in terms of biblical categories and biblical definitions, and not in terms of these religious categories and religious definitions that are then imposed on the text. And this is why Paul has to correct the Corinthians and the emphasis here that he is making is on the importance of edification in contrast to using the pseudo gift of tongues. Now the reason one reason we know there's a difference in the way Paul is describing this in this passage is that he uses and I'm going to just going to just write the English word up here, he makes a contrast between the singular use of the word glossa or tongue and the plural use of the word glossa or tongues. And it is the plural use that refers to the legitimate spiritual gift of speaking in languages. These were human languages that were not learned through the normal process, but through a miraculous intervention of God the Holy Spirit, the speaker was able to communicate the gospel or Bible doctrine to someone through 
this supernatural methodology. It was a temporary gift restricted to the church age, I mean to the early stage of the church age, as we will see in our study this morning. In contrast to this use of tongues as a plural, which is legitimate, Paul uses the word in the singular in order to refer to the pseudo-practice in Corinth, which the carnal Corinthians were claiming was the legitimate practice, and they were labeling it as such. And there are many times in this epistle where Paul uses certain catchwords or catchphrases or slogans that the Corinthians had come up with for their spiritual life that he uses and throws back on them. There is an element of sanctified sarcasm here, and it is clear that he is not happy at all with what is going on in their uh, congregation. For example, let's go back to the first part of the chapter. Paul says, beginning in verse 1, Pursue love, that's the priority, and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. See, he's putting the emphasis on prophecy as opposed to tongues. They were putting the emphasis on tongues, not prophecy. And the reason he puts the emphasis on prophecy is explained in verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue, notice the singular, he who speaks in a tongue, that is in your pseudo-use of the gift, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Now that's the problem because it's a spiritual gift by definition. All spiritual gifts were designed for use to another human being, to a believer usually, for the benefit of the body of Christ, not for one's own benefit. And as I pointed out last time, the word for God here lacks the article in the Greek and ought to be translated with a lowercase g, that the one who speaks in pseudo-tongues does not speak to men but to a god. This was their practice that was being uh, held over from their pagan background. He says, for no one understands him, however, in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Or uh, And last time I dealt with the fact that the word pneuma, uh, pneuma has... Uh, various meanings in the text. Uh, it can mean wind, breath. It can refer to the immaterial part of man. And I have had a tendency to take this. There's some, there's some difficulties in this, in this chapter. And this week I decided that uh, you can take this word pneuma two different ways. We're going to deal with it specifically when we get down into verse 13. But as you look at this particular word, it's very possible and likely possible that what Paul is saying here is using it simply in the sense of breath. However, with your breath, you're just speaking mysteries. You're just making noise. And the use of the term there, musterion, is a direct allusion to their uh, operation of the mystery religions and their th- this uh, illegitimate transfer of that methodology into Christianity. And then in verse 3 he says, But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. In contrast, verse 4, He who speaks in a tongue, notice it's the singular, it's the pseudo-use of the gift, edifies himself. That's an illegitimate use of any spiritual gift. It's not for self-edification. It is for the edification of the body. So Paul is not 
pleased at all with what's going on in Corinth, and he is giving them certain regulations. And then in verse 5 he says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. And you notice the shift to uh, plural languages, and he's setting up a hypothetical situation. And he's saying, I wish you did all have the legitimate gift of languages, but even more, that you prophesied. In other words, the emphasis is on prophecy because it produces edification. And that is the point all the way down to verse 12. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. In other words, tongues doesn't produce uh, edification in the body unless there is interpretation. He recognizes that when the legitimate gift is in operation. But what's going on in your church has nothing to do with edification. So before we continue our study, we need to look at the doctrine of edification, what the Bible teaches about edification in the New Testament, the priority of edification. First of all, the Greek terms. The noun is oikodome, and the verb is oikodomeo, oikodome and oikodomeo. And it has a literal meaning to build up, to construct, or to strengthen something. It's the word that was used in construction trades for putting up any kind of physical edifice, building a house, building a temple, building any sort of physical structure. The word is used in a figurative sense to refer to the strengthening of one's spiritual life. But the basic terminology is oikodome for the noun and oikodomeo for the verb. Oikodome, the noun, is used in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3, 5, 12, and 26. 3, 5, 12, and 26. Point number two. Literally, the noun and the verb refer to physical construction, but they are used as a metaphor for the process of spiritual growth, the strengthening of the soul through Bible doctrine. The Bible uses the imagery of physical growth to portray what takes place in the spiritual life of every one of us. We are born spiritually dead but physically alive. We are born as an infant. We are helpless and we can't do anything to to, uh, produce our own growth. The one thing we need to do is to eat. And as we eat, what takes place metabolically is that the food that we take in, the food that we ingest, is transformed by our digestive processes and converted into energy that is taken by the bloodstream out to the cells of our body, which produces physical growth, and we begin to grow physically. By analogy, the newborn believer is to desire the sincere milk of the word, First Peter 2.2. 2. We are to hunger. That is a command. We are to hunger and desire for the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So once you put your faith alone in Christ alone for salvation, you are born again. At at physical birth, you are spiritually dead because the Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is therefore nothing a dead person can do to save himself. 
You can't uh, make yourself savable through good works. You can't make yourself savable by participation in religious activity or ritual. You cannot make yourself savable by any actions in, in life. There's nothing that we can do that can uh, gain or curry favor with God. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Notice it doesn't say all of our unrighteousness. It says all of our righteousnesses. That means that we can't do anything that pleases God. The best that we have to offer is considered garbage as far as God is concerned. Therefore, he had to provide the solution to our spiritual death, and that took place when Jesus Christ went to the cross and all the sins of mankind were poured out on him. And during those three hours of darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m., the sins of the world were imputed to him by the justice of God, and he paid the penalty for our sin. And therefore, all that you have to do in order to have eternal life is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. And at that instant, the Bible says that you are regenerated. You become a new creature in Christ, but you're a spiritual baby, and you have to grow. And that growth process is what edification refers to. It is the strengthening of our soul and spirit, that immaterial part of man, the strengthening of that soul and spirit through a study of the Word of God, through Bible doctrine. So point three We use here at Preston City Bible Church the imagery of the soul fortress to illustrate that the soul is built up or edified. We use that picture of a soul fortress, that that as we study the Word, something is sort of constructed metaphorically in our soul. It is a, a protection against the assaults of the enemy. It's a protection against the uh false thinking of human viewpoint and the cosmic system, and it consists of various uh, problem-solving devices or stress busters, and it fortifies our soul, and and we are strengthened against uh, any temptation or testing in life. So that is the construction of the soul fortress. Point number four, edification is also a synonym for progressive sanctification. Edification is a synonym for progressive sanctification. The term sanctification translates the Greek word hagiosmos, which means to be set apart. We are set apart in three different ways in Scripture. First of all, we were set apart positionally at the instant of salvation. At the instant of salvation, we are identified with Christ through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, we're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are identified with him, and we're said to be in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. We are positionally identified with Christ. But experientially, we still have problems. We still have a sin nature. There's no sin that you could commit as an unbeliever that you can't commit as a believer. You still have all of those horrible ideas, opinions, and concepts that you were taught when you were an unbeliever hanging around in your soul, influencing the way you live. You still have a sin nature that is attracted to all sorts of sins, whether they are mental attitude sins such as arrogance, self-righteousness, jealousy, envy, bitterness, uh, lust patterns, whatever that may be, whether it has to do with... uh, 
material lust, uh, monetary lust, sexual lust, uh, lust for uh, pleasure, whatever it may be. We have mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue. Some people are extremely prone to sins of the tongue, gossip, maligning, slander. Other people are not attracted to those sins. And then we have uh, overt sins. Whatever it is, the sin nature is still pushing you and tempting you to sin in those categories. And the only way to uh, overcome the sin nature is through the study of the Word of God and the application under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then the third use of sanctification has to do with ultimate sanctification when we are absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, at which time there is no more sin nature and we are perfect. That happens either at physical death or for some it will take place at the rapture of the church. So edification then is a synonym for the middle of these, that is progressive sanctification. Edification defines that process of spiritual growth. Now there are, this should be point number five, there are two means of edification. There are two means of edification stated in the scripture. They work together, they do not operate independently of one another. There's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We see this most clearly through a comparison of Ephesians 5.18, the command to be filled with the Spirit, and the results of that command given in Ephesians 5.19 and following in comparison with Colossians 3.16, to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in your soul. And as a result of that, the same things follow in Colossians 3.17 and following that follow from Ephesians 5.18. The two work together. I've often likened this to the operation of a mechanic in overhauling an old beat-up car. You can give that mechanic a wrench and a screwdriver, and if he's a talented mechanic... There's a lot of things that he can do to repair that old car. There's a lot of things he can't do. The more tools you give the mechanic, the more he's able to do to overhaul that car. You give him a a toolbox with about 300 different kinds of uh, tools. You give him all kinds of computers to do engine analysis. You give him fancy computerized painting machines. In just a few weeks, you can have a car that looks brand new. But, see, the problem is most Christians don't give the Holy Spirit enough tools. The Holy Spirit, of course, is analogous to the mechanic. The mechanic is limited by the tools you give him. The Holy Spirit is not going to overhaul your life in a vacuum. He does it through the Word of God, and he does it through your consistent study of the Word of God, not simply going home and reading. That is important. I never want to be understood to be denigrating reading the Word of God. You should read it. But there's only so much you can learn reading the Word of God. That's why God gives the spiritual gift to pastor-teacher. And so there are men who are qualified to dig into the depths of the Word of God and to teach the Word of God so that people can grow. People cannot grow very much on the basis of their own limited frame of reference and their own limited study of the Word. Uh, this is analogous to uh, to placer uh, minds, people who used to go out like in the uh, 1850s in the gold rush in California, they would go out and they would uh, take their pans and they would uh, just uh, go along the rivers and they would get a little gold dust from, from panning for gold. 
But once you got to a point where you discovered a vein of gold, you needed to bring in a mining engineer who knew how to utilize all of the heavy equipment so that he could dig down into the earth and find the uh, serious deposits of gold. And most people never knew how to do that, so they never made much money in the gold fields, but they were able to make some, and that's analogous to most Christians. They think they can grow to spiritual maturity just by reading the Word or showing up at church once a week, and that somehow they're going to grow in advance, and they're going to grow a little bit, but not much, because they are limiting the tools that the Holy Spirit has. So the Holy Spirit is the mechanic who overhauls the life, And it is the Word of God that is the tool that he uses. A couple of passages that emphasize this are, first of all, Acts 20.32, where Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, and he says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the Word of his grace. That is a specific reference to the Word of God, which would be inscripturated in the canon of the New Testament. The Word of his grace, which is able to build you up. There's our word, Oikadameo, the verb, which is able to build you up, which is able to edify you and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I want to point out two things. First of all, it is the word of his grace which is able to build you up. It doesn't happen apart from a knowledge of the word of God and application of the word of God. And second, he's addressing believers who already have an inheritance in Christ. So he's talking about a second kind of inheritance. And this is the inheritance related to the rewards of the believer for advancing to spiritual maturity and being an overcomer as described in the uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in the different letters to the different churches there. So it's the Word of God that is able to bring you to spiritual maturity. Another passage I mentioned earlier, 1 Peter 2, 1. There are many others. In Acts, another verse that emphasizes this is in Acts 9.31. Acts 9.31 is a, one of those summary statements that that's occurs uh, just after we have an uh, emphasis on uh, some of the confusion caused by the young, recently saved Saul of Tarsus and his over-exuberance in teaching the Word, and that generated a little persecution in uh, Judea and Samaria. And then the Holy Spirit juxtaposes this verse, which I think just shows the sense of humor of God, that after Saul Saul went back to Tarsus, we read, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. So there's something, a little humor there, that after Paul went home, they finally had a little peace, during which time there was growth. They had peace, and then this really does not come across in the English translation because the uh, editors of this translation end the sentence after the verb edified. There is no end to the sentence there in the Greek. The verb, I mean, the process goes on in the Greek. They were, uh, they had peace. By, actually, you have two uh, participles linked by a by the conjunction and they had peace and they see the and in the translation on the overhead where we read Samaria had peace and were edified that and that first and it does not exist in the original Greek of the New Testament it says they had peace and then you have two adverbial participles of means they had peace by being edified 
and by walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Notice, they had peace by being edified and walking. Those go together. You're edified by walking in the truth. We've gone through the doctrine of walking many, many times in Scripture. This is a general metaphor used by the writers of Scripture to talk about the day-by-day, moment-by-moment progress of the Christian life. We're to walk in the light. We're to walk by means of truth. We're to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And here they are edified and walking where in the fear of the Lord. To understand the concept of the fear of the Lord, you have to go back to the Proverbs where we learn that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord has to do with respect for God and for his word and making his word the highest priority in our life. So they were being edified and were walking by means of the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the term comfort there is really a bad translation. It is a familiar term for us, paraklesis, which has to do with the uh, Holy Spirit and his being another comforter. But the word there, paraklesis, has more to do with comfort by means of the word. We did a study on paraklesis as it's used in the New Testament in relationship to the spiritual gift. This isn't the kind of comfort where you emotionally... Uh, mollify somebody going through difficult times where you just sort of come up and give them a hug and some warm fuzzies. There's nothing wrong with that. But this has to do, the comfort of the Holy Spirit has to do with the teaching of the Word of God. And we did a study where we traced the use of the word comfort and showed that it has to do with comforting somebody by means of communicating uh, the Word of God and doctrine to that individual. Perhaps the most clear uh, passage related to this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul concludes a section by saying, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And that's the verb form of paraklesis. It's the verb parakaleo. Now, what does he mean when he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words? Well, let's go back to verse 13. You have to examine the context. The problem was that Paul had gone to the church at Thessalonica, and they had taught the word, and they had taught, obviously, about the rapture. See, that's to show that there's so many people who don't believe in the rapture today and say, why do you get all caught up in teaching about eschatology? It's more important to to focus on the spiritual life today. There's so many other problems in society. Don't get distracted by by teaching about prophecy. Nevertheless, Paul only spent uh, a month or two in Thessalonica at at, at the longest, and he dealt with eschatology and the rapture. Now, the problem was that folks there were still confused, and they thought that that Jesus was going to come back at any moment, and then all of a sudden, folks in the congregation started to die. And uh, some of the older folks, it's not that they had a, a plague or anything, but in the course of time, people died, and they weren't sure what happened to them. They expected that Jesus would come back before anybody would die. They took the doctrine of imminency a little too uh, a little too far. So Paul had to correct them and help them to understand that, no, there would be believers who would die physically before Jesus came, would come back. And so he explains this to them in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others 
who have no hope. See, and that, of course, makes it legitimate for believers to go through sorrow and grief at the time of a personal loss. See, there's a lot of Christians who get this idea that if I'm a Christian, I've got to have joy all the time, and you can. There's not a, there's not a contrast between joy and grief. Jesus was sorrowful, according to Matthew. He was, he sorrowed exceedingly in, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. He never lost his happiness. He never lost his eternal joy. But at the same time, in terms of human emotions, he was also experiencing sorrow. So uh, you, you can't fall prey to this, this trap that you can't be sad or sorrowful over certain circumstances or situations in life and not also still have joy. The joy is our mental attitude based on the fact that we know that God has a plan and purpose for our life, Jesus Christ controls history, and that our happiness is not dependent on our circumstances, but at the same time we run into situations in life that do cause us to be sorrowful, that do cause a certain uh, grief reaction, and that is limited by the doctrine that controls our thinking. And that's what Paul says here, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. In other words, believers are going to experience grief and sadness, but it's not going to be the kind of debilitating, overwhelming sorrow and sadness that the unbeliever experiences. Why? Because we believe certain things, 14 and following. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And that term, sleeping in Jesus, was a, a euphemism for b- those who had died physically before the Lord comes back. So Paul is saying that you comfort people by giving them doctrine. You comfort them by teaching the truth, not by slapping them in the face with the Bible, but you have to learn how to do it in a, in a manner that is not uh, cold and insensitive, but you give them scriptures. That's the means of comfort. So we grow by means of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, which is teaching under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And, of course, we are reminded that Jesus prayed to the Father in John seventeen seventeen. Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is the word of God that is the means of sanctification. Now, point number six, edification is the goal of the communication gifts. If you have a communication gift today, which is either evangelism or the gift of pastor-teacher, the goal of that communication gift, the purpose that God gives that gift, is edification, Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edification of of the body of Christ. It is designed to equip every believer to carry out the work of ministry. That is the function of those service gifts. And the ultimate goal then is expressed in the last clause for the edification, that is the building up of the body of Christ. See, that last phrase, for the edification of the body of Christ, uh, connects to the first phrase, equipping of the saints. So the equip the saints for the edification of the body of Christ. That's the purpose of the gift of pastor-teacher, which is given in Ephesians 4.11. Then point number seven, the, uh, the edification of the body of Christ 
is the goal and task of the person with a communication gift. Edification is the goal the communication gifts. That was point six. Edification of the body is the goal and task of the person. That's the distinction I'm making. It's the goal of the gift, the purpose of giving the gift in verse, uh, in point six, Ephesians 4.12. Point seven is saying it should be the goal and task of the individual who has that gift. This is what should govern your life. If you have the gift of evangelism or pastor teacher, then your goal in life is to produce edification in the body of Christ and everything else that you do in life needs to take second uh, place to that priority. Paul states this in 2 Corinthians 12:19, where he says, Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? But we speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. That's what controlled the Apostle Paul's decision-making. When he faced decisions in life, he was not making those decisions based on what made him happy, what made him comfortable, what brought pleasure to himself. He realized that God had given him a spiritual gift, and the purpose for that gifting was to, to provide for edification in the body of Christ. So therefore, he, as he grew to spiritual maturity, he understood that everything he did, every decision he made, had to be governed by the gift that God gave him. And so he was motivated to do all things by the fact that he had his task was to produce edification in his hearers. And then our final point, point eight, Edification is the result of mental processes in the soul as God the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and uses it to transform the mentality of the believer. Edification is the result of mental processes in the soul as God the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and uses it to transform the mentality of the believer. Edification emphasizes thought. Edification emphasizes mentality. Edification emphasizes understanding the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit so you can believe it, and the Holy Spirit then uses that to convert it from just simple academic knowledge as gnosis to epinosis so that you can grow and advance spiritually. Epinosis is usable doctrine. It is not necessarily applied. It doesn't automatically produce growth, but as you use it, uh, the Holy Spirit produces growth. This is uh, the emphasis here, though, and this point is on the mental processes, thinking. The spiritual life is a life of thinking. It is not a life of emotion. It is not a life of feeling. It is based on thinking God's Word and applying God's Word. Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, anachinosis, the renovation of your mind, your thinking. The word there for mind is the Greek word uh, nous, the renovation of your thought so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the emphasis in the Scripture is thinking, renovating what's in your mind, getting rid of all of that human viewpoint that you brought with you uh, that came into your 
your head before you were saved and getting rid of it and replacing it with divine viewpoint under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the emphasis throughout the New Testament is on edification. It's on thinking. It's on learning the Word of God. You can't ever know enough of the Word of God. You always hear people today come along and say, well, you know, if we only applied what we knew, we know too much. We're not applying but 1% of it. Well, folks, if you've been around for a while, you only apply 1% of whatever you know. Or 2%. We rarely apply very much of what we know. But the more you know, the more you will apply. See, if you only know a cup's worth of knowledge and you apply 1% of it, that's not very much. But you have uh, several gallons worth of knowledge and you apply 1% of it, well, you're applying a whole lot more. So the more you know, the greater your frame of reference, the more you will be able to apply. And remember, we God is omniscient. We never will be omniscient, not even when we're in heaven. We will always be learning. So there is an emphasis in on the mentality here, and that is what Paul brings to the table starting in verse 13. Paul says, therefore, now the therefore here is an inferential conclusion based on everything that he has said in the first 13 verse, or first 12 verses. The first 12 verses, he emphasizes the importance and the centrality of edification. Not just speaking in this pseudo tongues, but edifying the congregation. So he concludes, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue Notice it's the singular, this is pseudo-tongues. Let the one who's speaking in the pseudo-tongues pray that he may interpret. For if, verse 14, for if, and he is using a third-class condition here to indicate a hypothetical situation, if I pray uh, in a tongue, once again it's singular, he then says, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The word here for spirit is the Greek word pneuma. Once again, this word has numerous meanings in Greek, and every time we run across it, you have to decide on the basis of context what it is referring to. I've listed just a few of the meanings here on the screen. Wind, breath, thought, attitude, inner person, spiritual gift, human spirit, Holy Spirit. What does it mean in the context? And I would suggest here that it, it, I go back and forth. Sometimes I think it means just the inner man uh, in contrast to the mind here. So the, when it uses, when it talks about the inner man, though, the concept of pneuma usually includes the mind because the inner man would just include both soul and spirit. So I, uh, if there's a contrast here, and there is, between the mentality and the spirit, then spirit here can't refer to that which would include the mind. See, he's he's contrasting what's happened in these next verses. He's contrasting the person who just has who is spirit versus spirit and mind. The emphasis all through these examples in the next four or five verses is the importance of having the mentality engaged, the importance of thinking. And his his point is that if you're not thinking, it can't be the Christian life. God the Holy Spirit does not operate apart from thought. If you're just going through this thing and emoting and emphasizing experience, then you're not doing anything spiritually. You are a failure in the Christian life. You're operating like a pagan. So I think that the best way to understand this 
is as breath. For if I pray with in pseudo tongues, my breath prays. I'm just using my breath to articulate noise. If I pray in a tongue, pseudo tongues, my breath prays, but my mind is unfruitful. My mentality is not engaged. I am not thinking. And that word for mind is the Greek word nous, meaning our mind or the location of our of our rational processes, our mentality, and our thinking. Remember, it is our thinking that is to be renovated as we grow and mature according to Romans 12.2. So if the mind is disengaged, then our spiritual growth is disengaged. Then we go to verse 15. What is the outcome then, Paul says? Well, I will pray with my spirit, that is breath, and I will pray with the mind also. See, I, it is it is not an issue of spirit versus or breath versus mind. It is that I have to have the mind engaged. I will pray with the spirit and the mind. I will sing with the spirit and the mind. It is the mentality that makes it significant. It is the engaging of the thought that makes it significant. Verse 16, otherwise, if and here he gives a hypothetical conclusion to counter their argument. He says, if you bless with breath only, if you just articulate something, if you just say something and make noise, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, that is the person who doesn't know what you've said, he just hears a noise, how will he know whether or not to say amen at the giving of your thanks? Now that word amen comes from the Hebrew word amen in the P-L, which means I believe it. How can somebody affirm that they believe what you say if they don't know what you said and if you don't know what you said? You know, just as a side note here, I always make this point when I have a discussion with them. Pentecostals are charismatics, and you will often hear, as I did one time, in fact, I had this conversation when I candidated at a church in Irving, Texas. I did eventually become the pastor of that church, but I went there uh, to candidate, and I taught one Sunday, and afterwards there were two men who came up, and they wanted to uh, find out if I believed in the uh, fill in, in the giving of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit for today. And, of course, whenever anybody phrases it that way, you know that what they're really asking is, do you believe in tongues? That's their, their, that's their code word. So I said, uh, well, I believe in the filling of the Spirit, but not the way you're talking about it. I don't believe that the gift of tongues or healing or miracles continue today. Uh, and one guy said, well, you don't think it, it go, it's, it's important for a prayer language? And I said, no, not at all. And I went to 1 Corinthians 14 to show why I believed it didn't operate as a prayer language because that was for private personal edification. And I went to this passage, and, I, and, and he went on to say, well, well, what would you do if, uh, if someone in your congregation used tongues as a prayer language? I would say, well, if I find out about it, I will discourage you. And if you make an issue out of it, I will ask you to go someplace where that's accepted. And over the course of time, uh, as he sat under my teaching, that young man uh, got rid of all of those crazy beliefs he had picked up somewhere and was no longer, is no longer charismatic or have those tendencies. But one of the things I pointed out to him in the conversation as he was tr- trying to say, well, you know, God always answers my prayers more when I pray in tongue. I said, well, how do you know that? You don't know what you're praying for. 
You know, if you don't if you don't understand what you're saying, how do you know that you're asking for anything in the first place? And in the second place, how do you know what you asked for? And if you don't know if you asked or what you asked for, then how can you know that God answered it? That was the beginning of his slide out of the charismatic problem. Paul is emphasizing that. So if you bless in the Spirit only, and it's just breath and noise, how can anyone say that they agree with you in your prayer? Because they don't know what you're saying. Verse 17, for you're, you may be giving thanks. See, Paul's very diplomatic here. He says, okay, for the sake of argument, you're giving thanks, but the other person isn't edified. Edification is the point here. That's what spiritual gifts were given for. Verse 18, he says, I thank God I speak and notice the change. Not a singular glossa, but a plural. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. It's the legitimate use of the gift. As an apostle, Paul probably had all of the spiritual gifts. So he affirms the reality at that time. It's in the pre-canon period, the apostolic period of the church, before the canon's complete. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, this is where he drives home the point. In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I can instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a singular tongue, pseudo-tongue. In other words, he's saying it's more important and more significant that you say five things somebody can understand that will produce edification than to say a thousand words in something nobody understands and and doesn't produce edification. Verse 20, he says, grow up. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. And here he changes from noose to friend. And friend emphasizes the process of thought. He says, quit being immature in the way you are thinking, in your process of thought. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking, that is, in your process of thought, be mature. Grow up. Get past this infatuation with experience as a basis for evaluating your spirituality. You have to understand the significance of this gift of languages. And then he gets to the explanation of its purpose in verse 21. In the law it is written. Now this is a standard phraseology in the Greek for an authoritative quotation from the Old Testament. He says, in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And this is a quotation from Isaiah 28, verse 11, and part of verse 12. There's a slight modification in here on the... uh, and the quotation from the Old Testament in order to make his application. Now, the point I want to make here is that this is not a fulfillment of prophecy. I don't have the time this morning to go through the four different ways in which Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament. But the, but the fourth way is by taking or su- a summary of an Old Testament passage and applying it to a New Testament situation. That's different from a direct prophecy such as Micah 5.2, which prophesied that the Messiah would be born 
in Bethlehem Ephrathah, and then Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Actually, the event in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12 is a fulfillment of a prophecy, and Paul is drawing an analogy uh, between the event referenced in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12 and what was going on at the beginning of the church age as both being fulfillments of a prophecy in in Deuteronomy. So I want to start there. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28 describes the stages of divine discipline on the nation Israel. It's related to the five cycles of discipline that God would bring, five different series of judgments that God would bring upon the Jews. And in Deuteronomy 28, uh, verse 49, we read, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. And so the prophecy was that if you are continuously disobedient to God's word, if you continuously ignore the law, then God will eventually discipline you through a foreign power who will speak a language you don't understand. Now, the first time that this happens in the history of Israel is when they went out under discipline. First, the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and then the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. And this is the context of the Isaiah 28 passage. In fact, the Isaiah 28 passage was written after the northern kingdom had gone out under divine discipline, but the first four verses are addressed uh, to Ephraim, the northern kingdom. Now, they had already gone out under divine discipline. This is just a reminder to the southern kingdom that they were committing the same error, the same mistakes of the northern kingdom. They were more concerned with experience and personal pleasure than the word of God. Their priests were giving in to drunkenness. Today, we would make that analogous to becoming either emotionally drunk or to being involved in, in drugs or, or addicted to pleasure, whatever it may be, anything that distracts you from the Word of God. And so the first six verses of uh, Isaiah chapter 28 rehearse the problem uh, and, the, and the promise of divine judgment. The divine judgment is pictured as a storm, as a hurricane that comes upon the nation. In verse 2, Behold, the Lord has a mighty hand and a strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth, that is, to the land of Israel, with his hand. And this is talking about the onslaught of the Assyrian army in about 722 B.C. when they took out the northern kingdom of Israel. And then there is a warning applied to the to the uh, religious leaders in the southern kingdom in Judea. Now, in verse 7, Isaiah is speaking. Now, it's important here to know who speaks, because in Hebrew poetry it's not always clear. But in verse 7, 
Isaiah says, but they also erred through wine and through intoxicating drink or out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. In other words, the religious leaders are drunk. They're, they're uh, getting drunk. They're not teaching the word. And in fact, it's a picture here that Isaiah walked in on them, and they're having a party, and they're all drunk, and they're vomiting all over the table, and they're just passed out in their filth, and that's verse 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, Isaiah is quoting their response. See, this is their, uh, their ridicule of Isaiah's teaching. And so they, verses 9 and 10 contain their ridicule of Isaiah. Whom will he teach knowledge, and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breast, and that's where he said, yeah, his teaching's only good for children. In verse 10, they quote him, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. They're just regurgitating back to him. All you're concerned about is teaching. It's uh, inculcation, repetition, and we're sick of it. We're tired of it. It's boring. Uh, we don't want to hear it anymore. That's the thrust of their ridicule in verses 9 and 10. And so Isaiah's response begins in verse 11, and this is what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 14. Isaiah is going to give them a warning. For with stammering lips and another tongue, <coughs> excuse me, with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing yet yet. They would not hear. God is the one who promised to the Jews rest. He told them how to experience rest in him, and that was through obedience to the Mosaic law where God would give them blessing. Yet, the indictment is given in the last phrase of verse 12, they would not hear. They would not listen. So the judgment is that in uh, Gentile languages, they will hear the word taught. And this will be a sign of God's judgment. This is exactly what Paul says in Isaiah, I mean, 1 Corinthians 14:20. He's saying that the purpose for the spiritual gift of languages was to be a sign of judgment on Israel because they had rejected the Messiah. And there was judgment coming, the judgment that Jesus warned about in Matthew 24, the destruction of Jerusalem, which would occur in 70 A.D., and it was in 70 A.D. that marked the end of the use of the gift of tongues because its purpose was no longer there. The purpose was to serve as a sign of judgment to Jews. That did not mean that Jews always had to be present. That does not mean that that it always contained the gospel. It was simply when Jews heard the word taught in other languages, Gentile languages, that it would be a sign of judgment. Now, this is a horrible place to have to stop, so I'll review some of this next time when we uh, take this up again. But Paul clearly states in verse 22, in one of the strongest grammatical constructions possible in the Greek, he states the purpose of tongues is to serve as a sign not to those who believe but to unbelievers. It is a sign to unbelieving Israel. There's no way you can avoid that from the text. So 
We will come back and look at some of the nuances in that next time as we wrap up our study on the purpose and regulations for the gift of tongues with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, for the truth of your word, for its clarity. Father, we thank you for the way it reveals our need of salvation and the Savior that you provided. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this time to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty as a substitute for you on the cross. Therefore, you can do nothing to add to that salvation. You can do nothing to impress God. The only thing at issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? If you put your faith alone in Christ alone, if you believe in him and his substitutionary work on the cross, then at that instant you have eternal salvation. You don't need to uh, vocalize a prayer. You don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to raise a hand. You don't need to uh, change your life. All you need to do is trust in Christ. Jesus Christ knows whom you are trusting in for salvation. God is omniscient. At the instant of your faith alone in Christ alone, you are regenerate. You are saved, and you can never lose that salvation. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand them, that we'd be challenged to pursue spiritual growth and edification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.